Well, we're going to pick up a little bit where we left off last week on a biblical theology of cleansing. We looked at several passages last week in uh, the Old and New Testament. And uh, by way of review, let's, um, let's talk about some of these ones that we mentioned last week. Here are six different passages. Bring up a couple more for us to look at. But Numbers 19... Do you remember what type of cleansing was going on in Numbers 19 that we looked at last week? Okay, yeah, so it's the uh, ceremonial ceremonial cleansing. And that was for people in Israel. Uh, if someone had touched a dead body and be, had become unclean ceremonially in that way, there was a process to go through in Israel through the priests to make oneself clean. There was a ceremonial cleansing, and that included a branch of hyssop and some ashes of a sacrifice mixed with water. Okay. What about Psalm 51? Okay. In the context of Psalm 51, what's David praying about? Yeah. Yeah, forgiveness for his sin. And remember, he says, um, I just... That just doesn't look good. I'm going to redo that word. Uh, David even asks the Lord to clean him with hyssop. Purge me with hyssop. The same uh, branch that's used in the ceremonial cleansing, David is applying in a spiritual sense in Psalm 51. How about Ezekiel 36? God's promise to Israel regarding a new covenant. What type of cleansing, what kind of phrasing is there having to do with cleansing? That promise. Okay, Okay. and do you remember the phrase that's used that has to do with water? Yes, yeah, sprinkle, I will sprinkle clean water on you, Yahweh says. Sprinkling water. Now, of course, that's spiritual too, right? Uh, uh, we don't expect Israel, national Israel, to be saved, um, what did I forget? Oh, the oh, sprinkling? That's not a word? <laughs> Sprinkling. There we go. <clears throat> we don't expect uh, Israel to be saved by a work of God just physically sprinkling water on them. There's a conversion. There's a heart change going on. In fact, in that passage, I will take out your heart of stone, give you a heart of flesh, but they will be spiritually cleansed in that way. Then we went to the New Testament, and I've cut some, some verses out that we looked at. Hebrews 9 and 10. Do you remember last week, talking about Hebrews 9 and 10 and how there was cleansing language there. I believe it was 9.22? Oh, 13.4, so it must be 10.22. So, 9, 13, and 14, what's going on there? Okay, yeah, so the ceremonial was a foreshadowing of the spiritual, and what is being cleansed in the life of the believer? Okay, yeah, it says in uh, yeah, it says in verse 14 that our conscience is being cleansed, okay? And so, um, I'll just write conscience cleansing, and then now look at chapter 10, verse 22. What type of cleansing is going on there? All right. Yes, yeah, so Jesus' death 
causes our hearts to be sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and, and then we mentioned this phrase just briefly last week, and our bodies washed with pure water. Now, is that talking about in, when you got saved, I think I said this last week, it's not like a bucket of water just dumped out on you the moment you first believed, right? But your whole body, your whole person, material, immaterial, your whole person as God created you is considered clean and acceptable in the sight of God. Amy just walked in. It's a Wednesday night. Amy's not supposed to be here. Uh, that's exciting. Whole person cleansing. Your heart and even your whole body cleansed. I was so excited to see you walk in, Amy. This is just weird in a good way. Welcome. When, on a night when we have so many people gone, Amy's here. That's great. All right. Um, and then Titus 3.5. Do you remember that one from last week talking about cleansing? What's going on in Titus 3.5 specifically with the Spirit? Okay. Yeah, spirit baptism, the washing and renewal of the Spirit. And the way it's presented in Titus 3 is that that's at the moment of belief, isn't it? And uh, I'll just quote it to you uh, from the page here. Titus 3, 5, He saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy, and by, so how did He save us? By the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. Okay? So that's where we left off last week as we were developing a biblical theology of cleansing. And why were we developing a biblical theology of cleansing? Well, it's because in 1 Peter 3, Peter says, baptism now saves you. And we're working on interpreting that. But we still have more work to do. So uh, we've left First Peter, and we're kind of out here in the field. And we're coming back, but we have more work to do in the field, okay? So let's uh, turn to Mark 1. That's going to be the first place I want us to look tonight. Mark 1, and then we're going to look in the book of Acts at a few different passages. But Mark chapter 1, verses 6 through 8. Mark is the concise gospel. So if you're looking for something that Jesus said or did, and you want the short version, you can go to the book of Mark. Uh, is he's, always, he's very concise, just 16 chapters in the Gospel of Mark. And do you know what Mark's word is? What word pops up in Mark all the time? Immediately. Good job. Yeah. Mark's word is immediately. That's, I've been reading through the book of Mark in my personal reading, and you just see that so much. It's like, Two or three times in every chapter, immediately, immediately, immediately. Uh, he's telling a sequential story. But would someone read verses 6 through 8? Mark chapter 1, 6 through 8. Who's got it? Okay, go ahead. All right, so here we have a direct link with baptism in the Holy Spirit, and it's a contrast between water and the Holy Spirit. So, John the Baptist saying, I'm baptizing you with water, but, so setting up contrast, he, the one who's coming, of course, Jesus, he's going to baptize his people with the Holy Spirit. So, we have right here a very explicit uh, definition, well, not definition, it's not full, but a very explicit reference to spirit baptism, and it's a coming spirit baptism, it's future from John the Baptist's perspective. 
Now, for us, it's not future. Jesus has come, and Jesus has begun to baptize his people with the Holy Spirit. But from John's perspective, it was a coming spirit baptism, okay? Now let's go to the book of Acts and go to Acts chapter 1. And let's look at verses uh, 4 and 5 of Acts 1. This is before Jesus' ascension. It's after his resurrection, but before he ascended into heaven. Acts chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. Would someone read those two verses for us? All right, so initially it was John the Baptist talking about being baptized with the Holy Spirit, and now we have Jesus' words. He's saying, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And again, it's contrasted to water. This is something different from water. It's a spirit baptism, okay? So that's Acts 1. Let's just turn a page over to Acts 2. And I'll read this section. It's a longer section, but here's the fulfillment of this. Notice that Jesus said, not many days from now. Well, it wasn't that many days. Acts chapter 2, verse 1, it says, When the day of Pentecost had come, when they were all together in one place, or they were all together in one place, period. Verse 2, And suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues as of fire distributing themselves, and they rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other languages or tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. Now there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the crowd came together and were bewildered because each one of them was hearing them speak in his own language. They were amazed and astonished, saying, Why are not all these who are speaking Galileans and How is it that we each hear them in our own language to which we were born? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the districts of Libya around Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them in our own languages or tongues speaking of the mighty deeds of God. And they all continued in amazement and great perplexity, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others were mocking and saying, They are full of sweet wine. Verse 14, But Peter, taking his stand with the eleven, raised his voice and declared to them, Men of Judea and all you who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give heed to my words. For these men are not drunk, as you suppose, for it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was spoken of through the prophet Joel. And it shall be in the last days, God says, that I will pour forth of my Spirit on all mankind. And we'll just stop there. So there's the initial beginnings of fulfillment of being baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And the sign that they had the Holy Spirit was what? They spoke with tongues, with other languages. Okay, we live in such a culture that has so messed this up that it needs to be stated. They weren't standing up saying, Okay, that's not a tongue. Uh, That's a seizure, I think. 
um, they were speaking in languages, okay? That was a sign that um, not only that they had received the Holy Spirit, but it was also a sign that the gospel was going out to more than just Israelites. The gospel was going forth. It's a mul- multiple language being, being spoken forth. That means that uh, the people of God weren't just going to be Hebrews anymore, okay? It's a sign in mul- multiple ways. Let's look at chapter 8. Turn forward to Acts chapter 8. This isn't the only place we see this spirit baptism type event. Acts chapter 8, verses 14 through 17. This is when Philip was in Samaria. Philip was an evangelist. He went and he proclaimed the gospel to Samaritans. They believed, they were baptized. Okay. They were baptized in water, though. They weren't spirit-baptized yet. So let's look at this. Someone read verses 14 to 17. Chapter 8, verses 14 to 17. Read that for us. You got it? Go ahead. All right. Is this passage teaching us that to receive the Holy Spirit, someone with apostolic authority has to lay hands on you? <laughs> no. Good. <laughs> no, no, no. That's not what it's teaching. That would be quite the stretch to get that from this passage. This is unique, though. We have to look at this and say, well, what is going on? You don't see an event like this in the book of Acts or anywhere else. This is unique. Um, We can't say with any real measure of certainty, but it appears as though there was something significant about those in Jerusalem going there, whether that was to uh, give an apostolic affirmation of those in Samaria as being members of the church, Because remember, Jews and Samaritans, they didn't exactly get along, right? It wasn't really in their minds for very long that uh, they would all join hands and be friends and go to the same fellowship, right? That wasn't really in their view. And so this is showing that they are true believers, and uh, perhaps it's showing the Samaritans that uh, the apostles are the ones to whom they are to listen because they have the authority of God. But in any case, whatever's the purpose behind this, we do see that there was a falling of the Holy Spirit that had not happened yet. That's in verse 16. He, the Holy Spirit, notice every time the Bible refers to the Holy Spirit, it says He, not it. He had not yet fallen upon any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. So again, you see a contrast between water baptism and spirit baptism. They had simply been dunked in the water. They had not yet been spiritually baptized. And then in Acts chapter 10, just a page or two over, Acts chapter 10, we see another event with a group of Gentiles, Peter preaching to them in this instance. And let's uh, look at verse 44, Acts chapter 10, all the way down to verse 44. Peter was preaching the gospel, and look at what it says. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who were listening to the message. All the circumcised believers who came with Peter were amazed, because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. For they were hearing them speaking with tongues, languages, and exalting God. Then Peter answered, Surely no one can refuse the water... For, the, for these to be baptized, who have received the Holy Spirit, just as we did, can he? 
and he ordered them to be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to stay on for a few days. So what do we see in this passage? What are some elements that we've seen in other passages that are coming back up? Okay, good. So they had not yet gone into the water and they received the Holy Spirit. How did they know that they had received the Holy Spirit? They spoke with languages. Yeah, if you look in chapter 11, you see Peter's explanation of this. Uh, verse 15, Acts eleven fifteen. Peter says, As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them just as He did upon us at the beginning. So, as they spoke with languages, and that was the sign that they had received the Spirit all the way back in chapter 2, he's saying the Gentiles did that also in chapter 10. And so in chapter 11, Peter's making these connections and saying, this is the sign that they've received not just the same Spirit, but the same portion of the Spirit, and are manifesting the same response. There's a unity. In Christ, there is neither Jew nor Gentile. It's starting to click for Peter because he's living through it. And notice what he says in the next verse, verse 16, and I remembered when this happened, I remembered the word of the Lord, how he used to say, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So this is spirit baptism taking place when people hear and believe the gospel message. Okay, Spirit baptism. And one more place to look, it's in 1 Corinthians 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. It's in verse uh, 13. Paul speaking this time. We'll get to this verse in the sermon series in a couple of weeks. Would someone read verse 16 for us? Or verse 13, uh, 12, 13. Okay, so what happens to put us into the body of Christ? What kind of baptism? <laughs> yeah. Okay. So, how did you get placed into this family, this church family? Uh, not necessarily your local church family, but generally speaking, God's family. By the Holy Spirit baptizing you with the baptism of Christ with the Holy Spirit into this family. Okay. All right, so um, it it's, can be understood at this time. This is the Titus 3 event, the washing and regeneration uh, or washing and renewal that's taking place. So when you're baptized with the Holy Spirit, there's a washing and renewal of your spirit. Your conscience is cleansed. It's a whole person cleansing. You're seen as... Uh, totally clean in the sight of God, all your sins are washed away. That's what's going on, and you're a, a part of the church, a member of the church. All of that happens at the time of spirit baptism. That making sense? You in, in agreement? Any disagreement or pushback with that? Anybody with a Methodist background that wants to push back a little bit? Because uh, there's there's some <clears throat> D.L. Moody taught this, R.A. Torrey. F.B. Meyer, all the guys that have two initials for their first name, apparently, D.L. Moody, R.A. Torrey, uh, F.B. Meyer. Uh, it started with Wesleyan theology. Actually, I just found out this week, Martin Lloyd-Jones believed this too, a, a name that 
you wouldn't necessarily associate with this movement. They believed that spirit baptism was something that happened to some believers, not all believers. They taught that spirit baptism is a second work of grace. And it's what moves you from being essentially a carnal Christian to a spiritual Christian. And not all Christians experience that. I have a hard time getting there from the Scriptures. Uh, As we just walked through these texts, I just have a hard time seeing that. I think just 1 Corinthians 12, 13, for by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body. If you're in the body of Christ, you've been baptized by the Holy Spirit. I don't see a way around that. So um, anyway, since none of you brought it up, I thought I'd bring it up and argue with myself, I guess. I don't know. Right, so uh, those who were baptized, who only knew John's baptism, had to get rebaptized. The most confusing one, and I think it's the only case, is that one we read in Acts chapter 8, where they were baptized in the name of Jesus, it says. It doesn't say, like with uh, the believers in Ephesus, or the, the people in Ephesus, that's when they say, we only know John's baptism, we don't know about Jesus. And so Paul explains, and they get rebaptized. In chapter 8, they knew about Jesus. They received the word. And they were baptized in Jesus' name, and they hadn't received the Holy Spirit yet. I'm going to say that's the only time in history that's ever happened. <laughs> so we, when we get to heaven, we can ask how all that played out and why that happened. But yeah, that's okay. So Wesleyan theology teaches, which Methodist, find a Methodist today who's actually a Wesleyan, right? Uh, so. Wesleyan theology teaches there's a second work of grace. There's an initial work of grace, that is, you believe and are saved. The second work of grace, then, is when you become filled with the Holy Spirit. So, if you read D.L. Moody's stuff, he, he was pretty adamant on that. Interesting stuff. Yeah. Yeah. There were unique manifestations of receiving the Spirit in, in that time. Yep. And we're going to go into a lot of detail this Sunday. That's what the message is about this Sunday, those miraculous signs of the first century. Uh, what do we make of those uh, as we get into 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, where it talks so much about tongues and prophecy. So um, that's what the message will be about this Sunday. Okay. Um, so I asked this last week, and I'll ask it again. Uh, we, we talked about um, Noah. When was Noah saved? Was it when he, he was brought safely through the water? As it says in 1 Peter 3, he was brought safely through water. Or was it at a, another time when he was saved? Do you remember that answer from last week? Yes, that's right. It was before he ever built the boat. It was before he ever knew he had to build a boat. (laughs) It was when, it says in Scripture, he found favor in the eyes of the Lord. That's when Noah was saved. Uh, Israel, we talked about Israel last week because in 1 Corinthians 10, it says when they went through the Red Sea, they were baptized into Moses. When was Israel saved? When they went through the Red Sea or before? Yeah, right? Before they ever went down to Egypt, they were elect, right? Uh, as a nation, okay? So when I say saved there, it's kind of loose. Uh, but when were they chosen to be delivered? Well, before they were ever in bondage, they were chosen to be delivered. 
Yes, that's right. The covenant that God made with Abraham and with his descendants. So now, when were you saved? And it's when you believed, right? Your salvation was applied to you in time at the moment you believed. Not when you went into the water and came out of the water. Okay? So when um, you see these instances of Noah being a type of baptism, that he was brought safely through water. Israel going through a type of baptism because they were baptized into Moses through the Red Sea. That's never the point of the writer of Scripture to say, and at that moment, that's when they got saved. Or at that moment, that's when God uh, bestowed favor upon them, is when they decided to do this. That's not the case. Uh, God saved them before those events. Um, We were chosen and received God's grace, regeneration, before we ever went down into the water. So, I mean, as you consider some of these that we looked at, the Hebrews passage, the Titus passage, the 1 Corinthians passage down here, those are not talking about physical water, are they? That's an act of the Spirit happening in our soul, in our, in our spirit, immaterial, in our immaterial. So the material physical baptism has to come after. It doesn't come before these things, it comes after. And it's a reflection of what's taking place in our heart beforehand. Okay? So these are symbols that indicate a spiritual reality. These are symbols that come afterwards that indicate a spiritual reality. And our spiritual reality is that we were saved through the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Again, 1 Corinthians 12, 3, we were baptized into one body. Being saved was God's work in doing that. And what's very interesting in that is when you consider the imputed righteousness of Christ that we get upon belief, that imputed righteousness, what, that's Jesus' righteousness that He brought about through his earthly life. He lived 33 years on this earth, perfectly obeying God in every single way. He lived a human life perfectly. And that perfect human life gets transferred to your account upon belief, right? What did that perfect human life include in the life of Christ? Baptism. Right. Right. Yes. But even, I mean, the fact that everything that Jesus did perfectly gets credited to our account, and that includes his going into the water and coming out of the water. We, we get Jesus' baptism on our account. He, why did he get baptized? What did he say? To fulfill all righteousness. To fulfill all righteousness. So he's fulfilling all righteousness for us on our behalf. And it's put onto our account. And so when you trust in your own baptism as a means of salvation, what you're doing is you're putting your hand up to the imputed righteousness of Christ and His baptism that's credited to your account. Your baptism is symbolic of having all of that credited to your account and being identified with Him. That's what baptism is. It's a symbol of being identified with Christ. And so our symbol is water baptism. And uh, it's inextricably tied to the spiritual reality, and I think this is what trips a lot of people up, is that you, you can talk about both of these baptisms just so closely because it's such a good picture of what happened in your heart. 
that you've been identified with Christ. And uh, just so it's such a, a, a great initial symbol of your new faith in Christ. When Peter's preaching at Pentecost and he says, repent and be baptized for the remission of your sins, that's a verse that can trip people up too that a lot of works-based religions like to bring up. Well, at that time, that's what was happening. People would believe and they would get baptized. They would repent and be baptized, identifying themselves with Christ, with the Christian community, as a testimony to everyone around them. And this, you didn't have, at that time, all these false religions that had made water baptism a work to earn salvation at that time. You didn't have the Church of Christ out there saying their thing. You didn't have all these different erroneous denominations out there chirping about, well, you got to go into the water if God's really going to save you. You didn't have that going on. And so that's why Peter says, repent and be baptized. And they did then and there on the spot. Um, it, it was a good initial symbol of their new community. And so I want to talk through, before we get back to 1 Peter 3, which we will tonight, we'll finish it tonight, one way or another. Um, want to talk about what happens to us at belief. And I've got these passages up here. What happens at conversion? We're going to start in Romans 2. So turn with me to uh, Romans chapter 2. And we'll look at the last verses there, verses 28 and 29. Would someone read Romans 2, 28 and 29? All right, so here, Paul is making a distinction between one who is a Jew ethnically, physically, by nature, and one who is a spiritual Jew, one who actually knows the Lord. The one who is an ethnic Jew is circumcised physically only, whereas the spiritual Jew is one who has been spiritually circumcised. It's a circumcision which is of the heart, it says in verse 29, and it's also, what? By the Spirit. So at conversion, when God saves a human soul, there's a spiritual circumcision that takes place in the heart, all right? Not at the physical act, it happens separate from that. So just like spirit baptism is being contrasted with water baptism at multiple points in the New Testament, here's a place where spiritual circumcision is being contrasted with physical circumcision, okay? And his praise is not from men, but his praise is from God. Turn to Romans 6. Romans 6, uh, verses 3 through 7. Someone want to read 3 to 7? Romans 6? Go ahead, Mike. Okay, so you see in verse 3, baptism being brought up, being baptized into Christ Jesus. And that baptism is into his death, it says in verse 3. And in verse 5, the start of verse 5, for if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we will be in the likeness of his resurrection. That uniting to Christ, that being united to him in the likeness of his death and his resurrection, isn't something that happens at physical water baptism, but referencing spiritual baptism as an identification with Christ. As we are saved... At the moment we are saved by God's Spirit, we are identified with Christ fully, totally, thoroughly in His death and in His resurrection. 
It's not that uh, we, you know, God says, okay, I would really like for you to be united with Christ, so I'm going to wait for you to go, uh, go down to the water and come back up. That's just not the presentation that we get in Scripture. Colossians, or no, Ephesians chapter 2. No, 1 Corinthians 6. Sorry, I got, got off there. Next, the next book, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Um, look at verse 17. Would someone read verse 17 for us? Total unity with Christ, and that is upon faith. Nothing said here about any physical act that we do as a means to obtaining this unity with Christ. This is upon faith we are united to Christ. By faith we are united to Christ. One spirit with Christ. Can you get any more identified with Christ than being one spirit with Him? No, you can't. Okay, no. So, upon faith, by believing in Christ, being saved, you are totally one spirit with the Lord. 2 Corinthians 5. The last verse of the chapter. One of my favorite verses. Maybe my favorite New Testament verse. 2 Corinthians 5.21 He made him who knew no sin... To be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. Okay, imputed righteousness. And again, upon faith. Never in the Bible do you see God commanding His people to do something to earn the righteousness of Christ. You can't earn a righteousness that's not your own. Can you? <laughs> it's given to you. It's a gift. And God has given us the righteousness of Christ as a gift. All right, so now Ephesians. Ephesians 2. This is what we looked at on Sunday together. Ephesians 2. The great but God being rich in mercy passage. Even when we were dead in our transgressions, He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. In verse 6, And raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come He might show the surpassing riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we would walk in them. So we have a spiritual, this is the word I used on Sunday, I think you know why, because that word is used a lot around here, exaltation, a spiritual exaltation by God's grace. And when, when are we exalted? In one sense, spiritually, and then there's coming a day when we will be physically glorified. So it's now and future, already but not yet. Okay? And then finally, Colossians chapter 2. Colossians 2, 
verses. I didn't write the verses down. Let's see. Oh, here we go. Um, verses 11 through 14. Really powerful verses. Colossians 2, 11 through 14. Who can read that for us? Colossians 2, 11 to 14. Go ahead. Wow, that's such a great passage. When you were dead in your uncircumcision, he made you alive, and you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, and you were buried with him in baptism, and you were raised up with him through faith. Wow. So spiritual, there's spiritual circumcision and baptism taking place upon faith. Okay? So at conversion, we see spiritual baptism, spiritual circumcision, we see full identification with Christ, total unity with Christ, imputed righteousness from Christ, and spiritual exaltation by God's grace. All happening at conversion. That's the testimony of Scripture. So, what could baptism, physical water baptism, be other than a reflection of a spiritual reality that has already taken place? How can you read that passage that we just read, if we just take the one in Colossians 2, and say, well, all those things were going to happen when they went into the water. They had to go into the water first before they could be saved. Because that's what people do with the 1 Peter 3 verse. Kind of forgetting that we're in 1 Peter 3 because we haven't even been there tonight, sorry. But um, where he says baptism now saves you, people will say, well, that means you have to be baptized to be saved. You have to be baptized in water. It says it. Look at all these first passages. There are other baptisms than physical water baptism. There's more going on than just getting your body wet in water. So this whole concept, this whole testimony of Scripture has to be in our minds as we seek to interpret what Peter's saying. And remember, this is Peter, an apostle of Christ, who said that Paul's letters are Scripture. That's 2 Peter chapter 3. He refers to Paul's letters as Scripture. He knew the law, Numbers 19. He knew the Psalms, what David prayed. He knew about the promise of the new covenant in Ezekiel 36. Peter knows this stuff, okay? So Peter's not going rogue here in his letter and saying, well, actually, you, you are required to go to the day's end and pacing and go into the pool. That's not what he's saying. Peter is is saying something else, okay? So in our lives, we have many symbols that reflect spiritual realities. It's not just baptism. We've got communion and, and other things that we do physically here that represent spiritual realities, don't we? We should never confuse the symbols of salvation, the symbols that reflect gospel truths, with the means of salvation. There are symbols that reflect salvation they are not to be confused with the means of salvation. It's not through these symbols that we acquire salvation. Okay? But it's by these symbols that we reflect salvation. Did those at Pentecost, when Peter said, repent and be baptized, did those at Pentecost trust in the water as their means of salvation? No, they did not. They believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. That was their only means of salvation is trusting in Jesus. Okay? It was an initiatory act. 
speaking to that type of baptism, a spontaneous type of baptism, Wayne Grudem says, to be baptized rightly is to make such an appeal to God. And he gives a little quote. Please, God, as I enter this baptism, which will cleanse my body outwardly, I am asking you to cleanse my heart inwardly. Forgive my sins and make me right before you. He says, in this way, baptism is an appropriate symbol for the beginning of the Christian life. And that's what the believers at Pentecost were thinking. They weren't thinking, this is what we have to do to be saved, is go into the water. They were thinking, I need a cleansed heart. Please, God, cleanse my heart through Jesus. And he did. Okay, so now, back to 1 Peter 3. 1 Peter 3, just looking at that, uh, those last two verses. When uh, <clears throat> he just mentioned Noah in verse 20, and now in verse 21... He says, corresponding to that, baptism now saves you, not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. So, uh, physical baptism, is it vitally important? Yeah, it is. Does it reflect a deep re- spiritual reality? Yes. Is it an obedience issue? Yes. Yes, it is. Does it save your soul? No, it does not. Okay. No, it doesn't. So Peter had a point in bringing this up, and let's exam- examine the type. We see a type-anti-type relationship between Noah, the ark, and baptism. Backing up to verse uh, 20, he's talking about the days of Noah during the construction of the ark in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. And so if we were to examine the flood and how it relates to baptism, the type and anti-type, in the flood he says how many persons were brought safely? Good. A few or eight. Okay. Were brought through. Now what about the you that's being used in verse 21. Baptism now saves you. Who, who's the you? Yeah, we could say all Christians, right? All Christians. So, type, anti-type in that regard. Okay. Uh, what happened to the few? It says in verse 20, they were... Yeah. Brought safely, okay? And what happens to all Christians who are baptized? They are, what's the word he uses? Saved. Baptism now saves you, okay? And one more, uh, the few who were brought safely, it was through what? Good, through water. Those who are baptized, Christians who are baptized, it's through what does it say? No. What does the text say? Through the resurrection of Christ. See that? I think that aspect of the verse gets left off by a lot of people who want to teach that this is water baptism. <laughs> baptism now saves you through the resurrection of Christ. If you skip the parenthetical part, which I'm not saying skip it because it's not Scripture, it's just 
as the sentence flows. Corresponding to that, baptism now saves you, dot, 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 through the resurrection of Christ. Okay? That's an important aspect. Okay? Sometimes I put X shorthand for Christ. I'm seeing that I did that on the board. I do that in my notes a lot because the, the Greek uh, chi... It's a letter. It's what Christ starts with, and so sometimes I put X, and that, I know what it means, but I'm recognizing right now that maybe you don't know what it means, so <laughs> that's what that means. Um, baptism is vitally important, and we do well to speak highly of it, but we have to understand its place in the Christian life, okay? And here, Peter is not saying, uh, you know, go through the water like, um, like Noah and the others did, and that's what saves you. He's saying we're saved through the resurrection of Christ. It is through Christ's resurrection that baptism now saves us. Um, I had a couple illustrations that I was going to mention, but I think I'll skip those. So, summary thoughts. Here's what I'm, here's what I'm saying 1 Peter 3 means. When he says, baptism now saves you, I believe that Peter has in view spirit baptism, not physical water baptism, okay? That it's spirit baptism that now saves you. The true correspondence in the Christian life to being brought safely, to being saved, the correspondence from Noah and the few to us is the spiritual cleansing that we have, the spiritual water by, by which we've been saved, not the physical water. And our spirit baptism at the moment of conversion has a foreshadowing in the ark. Okay, the ark is a foreshadowing, it's a type of what is to happen among all Christians in our spirit baptism. As the eight, the few, were rescued from the wrath of God, so are we. We are rescued from the wrath of God through our baptism. And we're placed into Christ through His resurrection. It's through the resurrection of Christ that we're placed into Him. It's through the resurrection of Christ that the Spirit baptizes us. We're identified with Him at belief, and that's when we're baptized. Physical baptism is an outward symbol, it's an, uh, an act of obedience, and it's an act that the Lord Jesus has commanded that we observe to witness to those around us that we have been baptized by the Spirit. What are we telling people when we obey the command of Christ to be baptized in water? We're telling people that we've been identified with Christ by Spirit baptism, aren't we? And just as Noah's family was delivered from a wicked and perverse generation, so too are we, rescued by God and brought safely through water. Not just the physical water, but spiritual water. We've been washed by the Spirit. Okay? Ezekiel 36, the sprinkling of clean water has begun with the Gentiles in the church. We've been brought safely through spiritual water. And Jesus now is at the right hand of God, and our lives are hidden with Him from the moment of belief. There we are, exalted, seated in the heavenlies, at the right hand of God, in Christ, totally, fully identified with Him. And that's where Peter goes at the end of this chapter. Where is Jesus? At the right hand of God, having gone into heaven. All things have been subjected to Him. This is the main theme of what Peter's saying. King Jesus is in charge. And you have been baptized into Him. Through His resurrection, you're identified with Him totally, completely. Through baptism, not the washing of your skin. He explicitly says that. But an appeal 
to God for a good conscience. What the Spirit has wrought in our lives is for us to appeal to God for the righteousness of Christ, a good, clean conscience. Hebrews 9 and 10, conscience cleansing. Okay. King Jesus is victorious, and in Him there's victory, security, and hope for us because we've been baptized into Him, identified with Him totally and fully. Okay? We have seven or minutes or so. so. Any thoughts or questions? I know I hammered the same themes over and over again, but it's important that we understand this passage and not be scared by it. That's right, yeah. Uh-huh. I am not aware of any. None should. I would agree. Um, there is no, I'll tell you this before looking, uh, there is no exegetical justification for putting water in there at all. Um, yeah, there's, the NIV says this water, talking about Noah's water, symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. Um, New Living Translation, that water is a picture of baptism. Uh, yeah, I can't imagine any of them saying that it's talking about water baptism. If you have a translation that does, you should throw that translation away. Burn it, because don't, you don't want to give it to anybody else. <laughs> That's bad, bad translation. Any other thoughts or questions? Andy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, yeah, you could say Jesus, but yeah, yeah. Yeah, um, so another way of thinking of John's baptism as a baptism of repentance would be an, an anticipatory faith. So our confession is one of work that is done. The Messiah has come, right? And with John the Baptist, from his perspective, there is coming a one who will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Okay, I'm, I'm doing this now, but there's coming another one. And you'll want to, you'll listen to him. He, so John, in his, that Mark 1 passage we read earlier, John totally openly admitted the insufficiency of his baptism. Um, I'm baptizing you with water. And that, that alone is insufficient, is what he's saying. Because there's coming a one who's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And that is obviously a more complete, fuller picture. It's based on Old Testament themes, particularly Ezekiel 36. Um, and... Right. Yep. Right. Yeah. Yes. John's not saying, and that future baptism won't include any concept of repentance. He's not saying that, right? Uh, he's saying, and repentance, of course, is a change of mind leading to a change of action. Uh, metanoia. So his baptism was an aspect of him clearing the way, making straight the path for the Lord. Turn your mind from your sin, yourself, your earning your own righteousness, all that stuff. Turn your mind from that and put your mind on the coming Messiah because he's, he's coming. 
He is coming. That's John announcing his baptism as saying, when you get baptized by me, it is an acknowledgement that you're looking forward to this soon coming Messiah. Not a far off coming Messiah, soon coming Messiah. And so in Acts 19, those at Ephesus had only heard of John's baptism and they had not yet heard the completed work of Christ. And so I think that's a good picture of Paul recognizing, saying, oh, you're still anticipating something. Well, let me tell you, it's done, <laughs> right? And so let's get baptized again on the basis of that confession. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yep. Good. Melissa? They became repentant. Yeah, right. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes, you're not going to do a physical act that represents worship toward God without your heart first being put in that place. You don't, go, you don't force yourself to do the act so that way you can get a heart of worship. Your heart of worship comes before, and that's why you're doing the act. And that's consistent with everything. That's the law. Why did a Jew ever obey any aspect of the law? Because his heart was already formed and molded by Yahweh to worship him. It's not that the Jew wakes up in the morning, oh, okay, I'm going to force myself through this law so at the end of the day, you know, doing all these acts, I'll have a heart of worship after doing all that stuff that I'm forcing myself through. That, that was never God's intention with the law. That's not how the law works. <laughs> you, you know what it's like to force yourself to do something that's outwardly righteous. Is that really worship? Well, no, it's not. God looks at the heart, right? And that comes before the act. Other thoughts? Maybe one more? If there's another final question. Yeah, not bad. Synonymous in a way, yeah. Autocorrect, thesaurus, yeah. Okay, well, good. Well, I think now we're ready to move on to chapter 4 next week, so we can do that. Um, and again, remember uh, those that <clears throat> weren't able to make it tonight, all those people traveling, um, and yeah, study up for this Sunday if you've got stuff to read and uh, that on this topic of spiritual gifts, particularly miraculous sign gifts. I'm going to give you an overview of what our church believes on that and why we believe it from Scripture going to give you a resource this Sunday, too, that will help you walk through some passages on your own. Um, it's an important topic, and it has made my brain very mushy this week. I've been talking to a lot of people for a long time about a lot of things regarding this issue this week and last week. So, anyway, okay, let's pray. Lord, again, we do thank you so much for your Word, and we ask that we would take this knowledge of your Word, all these different passages we looked at tonight, and that they would just soak into our soul, that we would take them and apply them rightly in our lives, that we would live by faith based on what you have said, that we would walk in confidence because we are fully identified with Christ, truly, completely, thoroughly. As we believe in Him, we are absolutely yours because we are hidden in Christ. God, give us just a great assurance and peace because of that and cause us to be filled with joy by your Spirit's power. Lord, we ask that we'd represent you well in 
all that we say and do and think this evening and for the rest of this week until we gather again. We love you. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.